Love to go ahead and open your Bibles with me to Romans chapter 12. Let's stand together and we're going to read together these first 12 verses of Romans chapter 12 and put our minds on this text that follows Paul's great description and explanation of the gospel of Jesus Christ and what should be the appropriate response rooted in faith of those who have been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. We read, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind that by testing you may discern what is the will of God, what is good and acceptable and perfect. For by the grace given to me, I say to everyone among you, not to think of himself more highly than he ought to think, but to think with sober judgment, each according to the measure of faith that God has assigned. For as in one body we have many members, and the members do not all have the same function, so we, though many, are one body in Christ, and individually members of one another. Having gifts that differ according to the grace given to us, let us use them. If prophecy in proportion to our faith, if service in our serving, the one who teaches in his teaching, the one who exhorts in his exhortation, the one who contributes in generosity, the one who leads with zeal, the one who does acts of mercy with cheerfulness. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. You can be seated. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, as we look at your word together this morning, and as we examine this truth that is before us, this Spirit-inspired, absolute truth, Father, I pray that it would have the weight in our hearts that it ought to have. I pray that we would not receive these words merely as the words of a man, the words of Paul, but we'd receive these words as they are, the very word of God. And we would seek, Lord, to, to have our lives conformed to your holy truth, that by the power of your spirit working in us and, and transforming us and shaping us more and more into the image of Christ and, and by the transforming of our wills and of our desires that Lord God, these, these characteristics, these, these descriptions that are given here, these marks of a genuine Christian would become more and more the marks of our own lives. And so Lord, we need to hear these words with a heart that says, Lord, I want to do this. I want to do this out of love for you. I want to do this because of the grace that I have received. Lord, help us to have a heart that says yes to these commands because we know what you have done to rescue us from the penalty of our sin and the worthlessness of our human attempts at good works. Our salvation is entirely of grace. It's entirely of your good pleasure. It's entirely because you loved us because you love us. Not because of anything in us. Not because of anything that we could possibly do to give ourselves merit with you because we don't have any. Nevertheless, these commands are to be a part of our lives. And so help us, Lord God, to hear these words and receive them as we ought to. And Father, to have an earnest desire to be faithful to you regardless of the circumstances and the pressures that we face. Lord, we know that all who desire to live a godly life will suffer persecution. Let us not shy away from that. Not in the least. I pray, Lord God, that you'd give me grace by your Spirit to preach these words powerfully and effectively. I pray that you would empty me of myself and fill me with the Holy Spirit, that I would be an honorable vessel for your use. 
I pray, Father God, for this, the congregation, that their hearts would be open to receive your word, that their ears would be unstopped to hear your word, and that, Lord God, they would not only be hearers of it, they would be doers of it. And I pray, Lord God, that all of us will be transformed for having sat under these words this morning, your holy word that does not return to you void. So do your work in us through your word right now, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Without apology, beloved, my favorite movie in the whole world is The Patriot. Now, I know that there are some of you out there that are movie snobs that are like, oh, that's not a classic. I don't care what you think. I think it is. No, I really do. Like, I mean, you can argue with me all day long about the sound of music or whatever else, right? Let me just, a little side note, sound of music has horrible theology. Really bad. Remember the song, nothing comes from nothing, nothing ever could. That's good. Here's the bad part. Somewhere in my youth or childhood, I must have done something good. No, no, you didn't. No, you didn't. Right. So anyway, my favorite movie is The Patriot. And, and most of you have probably seen it. But if you haven't, you know, it's about the Revolutionary War. Right. And and the suffering and the hardship that came with breaking free from Imperial England. Now, here's the deal about this movie. The main character, Benjamin Martin, is sort of an amalgamation. He's a he's a he's a representation of several American leaders for whom the revolution was particularly costly. And there's this recurring theme that runs throughout the movie, this recurring theme that is that just keeps getting repeated over and over. And the theme is this, stay the course. Stay the course. In the face of the burning and the looting of their homes and their lands, in the face of suffering and, and privation, in the face of the betrayal of their fellow citizens and the callous acts and the, the brutal tactics of the British, the tragic and painful deaths of their loved ones for the cause, the refrain throughout the movie is, stay the course, see it through to the end. Now, why do I bring that up? Not because I preach from movies. You know I don't do that, right? But here's why I bring that up. In a similar and a much greater way, That's the heart of this triplet of graces that Paul gives to us in Romans 12 and verse 12. No matter what, stay the course. No matter what, stay the course. You're the chosen of God. You've been regenerated by the Holy Spirit. You've been redeemed by the blood of Jesus Christ. You are exiles. You are aliens in this world. This world is not your home. So present yourself as a living sacrifice, which is your act of worship. Be transformed by the renewal of your minds, by the Word of God and the work of the Spirit that's in you. Seek to do the good and the acceptable and the perfect will of God as one who has died to sin and been made alive to God. And then verse 12, stay the course. Really, this phrase, be patient in tribulation, Beloved, I want you to see that that's the central exhortation of this verse. It's the central exhortation of this text. And it's bracketed on either side. It's bracketed on either side by the means by which this exhortation can be accomplished. By rejoicing in hope and by being constant in prayer, you will be able to be patient in tribulation. That's the idea here, okay? So the Holy Spirit leads. He directs Paul. To write these words. Why? Well, one, because God knows. And two, because Paul has personally experienced the reality that the context of our lives as Christians in this world, that the context of our lives, once we have been redeemed by the Lord Jesus Christ, once we've been regenerated and we've been taken out of this world and brought to the Lord, once that takes place, the context of our lives as Christians in this fallen world will be one, to one degree or another, of tribulation. It'll be one of tribulation. That is the context of the Christian life. Now, I know that doesn't play well in the health and wealth churches, right? I know that doesn't play well on the TV with the TV guys. That doesn't play well with the guys that have $1,000 suits and, and ride around in Lambos and, and have wives that have had thousands and trillions of dollars of surgery done on them. I know that doesn't play well with that group. But that's the facts of Scripture. That's the truth of the Word of God. If you're a faithful Christian in a world that hates Christ, make up your mind right now, you're going to deal with tribulation. That's going to be the context of your life to one degree or another. And the word for tribulation here is a word that means pressure or affliction. It's a word that means hardship or trouble. 
It's a word that means suffering in hostility. And here's what we need to understand. It's not a word that is used to describe the general trials and difficulties of living in a fallen and a sin-sick world that's common to all people. Okay? That's not what this is talking about. Rather, it's a word that is used chiefly to describe the afflictions and the hardship and the persecutions that we must endure as Christians for our allegiance to Christ as Lord. The tribulation that we have to endure for our faithfulness to His gospel, for our steadfastness regarding God's revealed truth and His righteous commands. The tribulation that we must endure for our pursuit of godly living in this world. The tribulation of which Paul speaks here is a direct result of our faith in Christ. In other words, here's the deal. Beloved, here's, here's just what it is. The promise that if you come to Christ, you'll have a pain-free, easy life is a lie. And there have been more professing Christians who have had their faith shipwrecked on that lie of an easy, stress-free, simple life as a result of believing in the Lord Jesus Christ than just about any other heresy in the world. The context of our lives as believers will be varying degrees of tribulation, and there's no avoiding it. In fact, from the earliest pages of the Scripture, with the murder of Abel by his own brother Cain. Why? Because Abel's actions were righteous and Cain's were not. Because Abel's offering was rooted in grace and Cain's was not. From the earliest pages of Scripture, with the murder of Abel by his own brother Cain, the lives of the faithful have been characterized by tribulation in this fallen and evil world, and we cannot shy away from that fact. The church in Rome was already feeling the pressure of being Christians under a pagan emperor in a pagan culture. And it would only grow more intense as... The Lordship of Christ demanded that they openly reject the imagined Lordship of Caesar. Paul was no stranger to the tribulation of loving and serving Christ in a world that's in rebellion to God. He faced it continually. He writes about it a lot. For instance, think about it. In carrying out his calling to take the gospel to the Gentile world, he describes the various tribulations that accompanied his ministry that had been entrusted to him. He speaks, for instance, in 2 Corinthians chapter 11 about the hostility and the difficulty that faced him from false apostles and deceitful workmen who disguised themselves as apostles of Christ. He speaks of the labors and the imprisonments and the beatings and the lashings and the constant dangers from robbers and his own people, the hunger and the exposure that he faced as he carried out his ministry, right? When speaking of himself, of himself and his fellow brothers in Christ as they carried the, the call or as they fulfilled the call to preach the gospel, he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 4 and starting in verse 7, these words. Listen to what he says. 2 Corinthians chapter 4 verse 7, he says, But we have this treasure, the treasure of the gospel of Jesus Christ. We have this treasure in jars of clay to show that the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. And then he says this, we are afflicted in every way, but not crushed. Perplexed, but not driven to despair. Persecuted, but not forsaken. Struck down but not destroyed, always carrying in the body the death of Jesus, sufferings, tribulations, so that the life of Jesus may also be manifested in our bodies. That was the context of Paul's life. Now, we might want to say, well, yeah, that was just the early Christians, and that was just the, you know, the apostles and the early preachers of the gospel. It's just those guys, those guys that were, you know, tasked with taking the gospel around the world. Those are the guys whose lives were filled with tribulation. We might want to think that, but we'd be wrong. You remember the words of the Lord Jesus Christ? They were spoken to a multitude that were not qualified to just a few. You remember what he said in the Sermon on the Mount? Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. 
for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account. Rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. The Lord told his disciples, and by extension us, Behold, I'm sending you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. So be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. Beware of men, for they will deliver you over to courts and flog you in their synagogues, and you will be dragged before governors and kings for my sake to bear witness before them and the Gentiles. When they deliver you over, do not be anxious how you are to speak or what you are to say. For what you are to say will be given you in that hour. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father speaking through you. Brother will deliver brother to death, and the father's child. And children will rise against parents and have them put to death. And you will be hated by all for my name's sake, but the one who endures to the end will be saved. He pressed that point home again in the Mount Olivet Discourse. In again, Matthew. Matthew chapter 24. He spoke of the end of the age and he said, They will deliver you up to tribulation and put you to death. And you'll be hated by all nations for my name's sake. And then many will fall away and betray one another and hate one another. And many false prophets will arise and lead many astray. And because lawlessness will be increased, the love of many will grow cold. But the one who endures to the end, you finish it will be saved. Paul told Timothy, Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted while evil people and imposters go on from bad to worse, deceiving and being deceived. 2 Timothy chapter 3, verses 12-13. through 13. Peter picks up the refrain. 1 Peter chapter 4, beginning in verse 12, and he says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. But rejoice insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when his glory is revealed. If you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or as an evildoer or as a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed but let him glorify God in that name. Now listen, there are multiplied texts in Scripture that speak to this very same thing. And if the idea of tribulation, right, of pressure and affliction, of hardship and trouble, of suffering and hostility because of your faith in Christ, if if that sounds foreign to our American ears, it is only because, to a great degree, Thus far, we have been insulated from it. For a long time now, the professing church in America has been insulated and existed in relative comfort and safety as compared with our brothers and our sisters in the rest of the world because of the social tolerance for morality and for Christian principles, that residue that is the result of This nation's founding, the vestiges, I would say, of a social morality and general general respect for the church that is now becoming an artifact of a bygone era. Things are not the same as they have always been in this country. And we need to wake up to that fact. What was once somewhat of a tolerant atmosphere has grown increasingly hostile towards Christians who openly boldly and without compromise align themselves with God, with His Christ, with the gospel, and with God's truth. Our government, our government agencies, our supposed agencies of justice and law, our society, our news media, our corporations, our entertainment is becoming more and more openly anti-Christian. We've now had several generations reared in a society dominated by atheistic naturalism. 
by evolution and moral relativism and by the absence of any sense of absolute and overarching truth. You want to know why our millennial generation, do you want to know why our youth are so messed up in this world? Take a look around us. The church has been silent while the prophets of atheistic naturalism have spoken the loudest and taken over our culture. Wake up. Too many of us sit around watching sitcoms, amusing ourselves to death. Too many of us get our news from ridiculous sources. The the news media that all says the same thing. Because they're run by the same companies. Nobody actually ever watches, like for instance, a congressional hearing. Where you actually hear the director of the FBI admit that the FBI has targeted conservative Christians. And that they have been placed on a terrorist watch list oh i didn't know the times they are a change in it's not the way it once was and it's taken a horrific toll on our nation can i tell you what in many ways the progression of christianity in america is 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 reflective really i think of the words of hebrews chapter 11 starting in verse 32 through verse 39 what we often call the hall of faith you know when you read that you know, it, account, it recounts the afflictions and the tribulations, but also the triumphant faith of the Old Testament saints. And when you read the beginning of the text, you read of great victories, don't you? You know, it, it speaks of faithful men who, through faith, conquered kingdoms, enforced justice, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the power of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, were made strong out of weakness, became mighty in war, put foreign armies to flight. Women received back their dead by resurrection, right? That's great stuff, isn't it? Triumph, victory, right? But then in the middle of verse 35, the text takes a bold left turn and it recounts great persecution, right? Some were tortured, refusing to accept release so that they might rise again to a better life. Others suffered mocking and flogging and even chains and imprisonment. They were stoned. They were sawn in two. They were killed with a sword. They went about in skins of sheep and goats, destitute, afflicted, mistreated, of whom the world was not worthy. Amen. Wandering about in deserts and mountains and in dens and caves of the earth. These saints faced Severe persecutions for their faith and their allegiance to the Lord. But they did so with steadfast resolve and endurance in the faith, didn't they? Now think about our own day. Think about our own day and the market turn that has accelerated tremendously, I would say, in the last decade and hypersonically in the last three or four years. For a long time, biblically faithful Christianity in this nation was tolerated, right? Maybe maybe it wasn't loved or, or maybe it was made the butt of jokes, but at least it was tolerated, right? But that's the case no more. Faithful Christians in this country who champion the absolute truth and the authority of biblical revelation. Faithful Christians who, who refuse to compromise on the exclusivity of Christ alone as Savior and Lord. Faithful Christians who openly proclaim the gospel. Faithful Christians who seek to live according to the righteous commands of the Creator God. Faithful Christians who reject atheistic naturalism and the myth of evolution and its bitter fruit. Faithful Christians who reject the modern sexual ethic and speak against the rampant spread of homosexuality and transgenderism and abortion rights and sexual immorality. Faithful Christians who oppose the sexualization and the indoctrination of our children. Who shine the light of God's truth upon the depravity of humanity. And who insist on bringing the lordship and the authority of Jesus Christ into the public square. Are increasingly a target of the thoroughgoing secular and increasingly intolerant society in which we live. That's facts. And you notice, oh, that I said faithful Christian. Did you notice that? Not Christians in general. Plenty of so-called Christians that accommodate the spirit of the age. That parrot the political and social talking points. That compromise on the clear statements of the Word of God. Listen, they don't endure tribulation because there's nothing to tribulate them over. 
I don't know if that's a word or not, but it is now. In fact, what I would say to you is this. Christians that increasingly try to accommodate the culture and accommodate society and accommodate everybody and all their hurts and twists and feels and stories and everything else. Let me tell you what they... Those people, those kinds of, quote, Christians, they're not respected by society. They're useful idiots to society. They're laughed at by society, by a society that is a whole lot more strident and faithful to their agenda than these so-called Christians are to their supposed Lord. And for some of us, the truth is this massive shift and reversal in our nation that initially was established on biblical principles that were acknowledged at least to some degree, this sort of shift, is, it's shocking to us, right? We, we just, we're not, we weren't prepared for this. But it shouldn't be, shouldn't be a shock to us if we know the Bible and its history. Again, from the very beginning, God's truth and God's people have been in the crosshairs of fallen mankind. Everywhere the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, it has eventually been met with persecution and with a determined effort to destroy it. Study history. Just take a look at Europe, where the Reformation once boomed. And now here we are in America, and we're a post-Christian nation. Let's not deceive ourselves and pretend we're not. We are a post-Christian nation. And the days of the social tolerance of biblical Christianity are coming to a quick end. Here's why. Because secular humanism cannot abide, cannot accommodate Christianity. It can't. The one true God and thoroughly secular man cannot both be God's. One of them has to go. And so persecution is quickly ramping up, especially in the halls of government and in our urban centers. Now, look, I'm not trying to scare anybody. This is not intended to be doom and gloom. And certainly you'll see by the end of this message that I'm not saying we all just need to withdraw into our these four walls. You know, we need to dig a moat around the church. We need to only get food with the click list. And we need to, you know, put some parapets on, on the different sides of the church and put some armed men up there that are good, you know, with weaponry. And we'll all just hunker down here like, you know, modern day David Koresh. It's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying this to scare us, but I am saying this to warn us and to wake us up. We can't have our heads in the sand. We're not going to be the only faithful Christians in the history of the world that have avoided persecution and tribulation. We're entering a time now when this society is going to make it increasingly difficult and ultimately excruciating to remain faithful to Christ. The book of Revelation graphically describes the theme of tribulation and trial in the last days, the rising of the beast and the Antichrist, severe persecution, even and even especially from the religious and the, quote, spiritual. God's people almost crushed out of existence, right? But we have this promise of the Lord Jesus Christ. In this world, you will have tribulation. But what? Take heart. I have overcome the world. And that's why Paul exhorts us here, be patient in tribulation. Be patient in tribulation. We need to hear and receive these words because they're not for the past generation and they're not for a future one. It's for our generation right now. And I don't want us to have the wrong idea about this word patient because, because if we just think about it in our own terms, we'll get the wrong idea. This word that's translated here as patient doesn't mean what we characteristically think it does. Okay? It's not speaking here of passive forbearance, okay? Like, for instance, when you're going through Hardee's, right? And you order a half-cut sweet tea. And you say it like that. So you make sure that the person hears you say, half-cut sweet tea. And then you pick up your meal, and it's all sweet tea, right? And you just kind of put up with it because, you know, you just passively forbear because you got stuff to do. So you just leave and you go on. I mean, some of you all, you turn around, you go back through the drive through because you're full of yourself. But most people just go on with life, right? It's not speaking here of, of the mile long when you, of your stoic, you know, acceptance of the mile long line at the DMV, right? That's not what it's, it means far more than that. In fact, the word isn't passive at all. The idea of being patient in this verse 
is to have dogged and tenacious perseverance. Well, that sounds very different, doesn't it? It's that dogged and tenacious perseverance. It's to bear up and remain steadfast and unmoved. It is the idea of resolute endurance, of staying the course amid the tribulation that comes of being a faithful disciple of Jesus Christ. You don't consider retreat. You refuse to be cowed into silence. You don't embrace compromise as an escape. To be patient in tribulation means there's no give in your allegiance to the Lord and to His Word. And there's no quit in your standing on His righteous standards. You just simply refuse to retreat in the face of the battle and you stay the course. That's the idea. It's the idea, for instance, of Martin Luther when he stood up before the Catholic magistrates. They were examining him. We're going to excommunicate him from the Roman Catholic Church. And they demanded of him to recant the things that he'd written in his books and to recant the truth of the gospel. And his response essentially was this. Councils have been historically wrong. Unless you can convince me from the word of God, I'm not going to move. Here I stand. So help me God. That's the idea of patient endurance. That's the idea of being patient in tribulation. Beloved, patient endurance doesn't give us an opt-out. It doesn't give us an opt-out to just withdraw from everything and say, well, you know what? All those people out there, they can just go to hell because that's what they want. That's not, that's not what this means. It doesn't give us, it doesn't give us an opt out from engaging our culture or evangelizing the lost. It doesn't give us an escape clause from proclaiming and standing upon and living under the authority of the truth of scripture. It doesn't give us an opt out of openly testifying to Christ and calling the lost to repentance and faith in Him and in His gospel of grace. In fact, it's the very opposite. Being patient in tribulation is not passively enduring and just withdrawing and just, oh, whatever. No, it's standing firm against the current. It's remaining steadfast. And you know what? Here's the truth. Remaining steadfast to Christ will likely expose us to greater degrees of persecution and hostility and troubles and affliction, not less. Not less. And we won't have to go looking for it. It will find us. It'll find us. Just a couple of weeks ago, somebody, um, you know, somebody in our office pointed out a Facebook post by somebody who hasn't been a member in this church in seven years that talked about how her, quote, forever church, you know, began following after Bill or Bob, is it Bob Gothard or Bill Gothard? Was it Bill Gothard, right? Bill Gothard and, and uh, whatever his ideas are and the Duggars and all. They were talking about us. I'm like, Bill Gothard, are you, what, what drugs are you on? I never spoke of Bill Gothard except to correct his legalism in this church at all. The Duggars? Are you kidding me? I didn't watch that show. I'm not a fan, just being honest. I don't adhere to Jim Bob and whatever her name is, Duggars' idea of life. But in this Facebook post, not calling us by name, but might as well have, heaping all kinds of lies upon our church. We aren't going looking for it. I haven't had a conversation with that person in seven years, except to say hi to him when I see him in the grocery store. You stand on the truth, expect to take it, expect to get hit. It's going to happen. But to withdraw and to seek, to protect ourselves, to faithlessly retreat can never be an option for the true soldier of Christ. The Lord, the Almighty says this, hear it well, this is Revelation 21 verse 18 or verse 8, as for the cowardly and the faithless, and then he lists some more. He says, their portion will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. As for the cowardly and the faithless. The cowardly and the faithless. Retreat is not an option for us. So how do we remain patient and stay the course? How do we stand firm with steadfast endurance? I mean, this is going to be hard. How do we refuse to compromise our faith in Christ in the face of tribulation? How do we do that? Two ways. By having the right perception and by engaging in the right practice. I just want to explain this to you very quickly. It's not going to take long to do this. Okay? So if you're looking at your watch like, man, we're like a third of the way into the sermon. And we're going to be here to like four. No, we're not. 
Relax. But even if we were, so what? God doesn't have a clock in eternity in heaven, and neither should you have one in church. Just saying. Two ways. It's by having the right perception and engaging in the right practice. You gotta have, first of all, the right perspective, which is to rejoice in hope. That's what Paul's saying here. To remain steadfast and unmoved amid the tribulation that we must surely encounter in this fallen and increasingly hostile culture. He says we gotta have the right perspective. See, our ultimate hope, beloved, is not that somehow everything will just, you know, get miraculously, progressively better and that we won't actually have to endure tribulation for Christ. That somehow something's going to give in our society and whoop, what do you know? It's, it's all of a sudden 1940s America again. Ain't coming. Our hope is something else entirely. And Paul tells us what it is. He describes it to us in Titus chapter 2, verses 11 through 13, when he says these words. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people. Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Waiting for our blessed hope. The appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. Beloved, our blessed hope is not that things are going to get better for Christians in America. Our blessed hope is the appearing of our God and Savior, Jesus Christ. That's what we're waiting for. I want you to think about what Paul's been saying to us throughout this epistle. I want you to think about how he's been describing the gospel to us. How the gospel ought to produce in our hearts a great joy, a durable, a lasting, an unshakable joy. Think about the way he has been talking to us about the gospel. He's been explaining to us by the leading of the Holy Spirit. Spirit. The glorious and the wonderful nature of being justified. The, the, wonder, the wonder of being redeemed. The wonder of being forgiven and being made a child of God through faith in the saving work of Christ on the cross. He contrasted with what we once were. We, you know, we were lost in trespasses and sins. We didn't seek after God. Not one of us sought for God. We, we, we couldn't do anything to make ourselves acceptable to God. And yet by the regenerating work of the Holy Spirit and through genuine faith in the perfect life and the wrath-bearing death and resurrection of our Lord Jesus Christ, we have been made holy and pure and righteous in the eyes of God and delivered out of this present evil age, seated with Him in the heavenlies and brought into His kingdom. Now that ought to be a source to all of us of abounding and continuing joy, right? Like, if that was it, that's enough, right? But there is more. And that's the point here. Our ultimate joy, beloved, and our ultimate hope is in the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Beholding the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ forever. It's in full and complete communion with God with no trace or vestige of sin a perfect, indivisible communion and joy in the God who made us to enjoy His glory. You remember Jesus' words in His prayer in John 17. In verse 3, remember He says, and this is eternal life. Do you remember His definition? What it was? It was this. That they know You, the only true God. And Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. I wonder if we were to ask people, hey, what's eternal life? What answers they might give? I know what I heard this last Sunday. It's fried chicken without cholesterol and streets of gold. Don't laugh at that. I mean, I know it's stupid and humorous. When we're sitting in church and a guy actually said the preacher, like, I just sat there and thought to myself. Well, I won't tell you what I thought to myself. No, I mean... It was horrible. But then in verse 24, here's what Jesus says also. He says, Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am. For what? To see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. 
That's the great joy-producing hope, beloved. That's the great motivation to faithful perseverance in the face of tribulation. It's the hope of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. It's beholding Jesus face to face. That's the goal of salvation. A lot of people miss that. That's not what moves them. They're moved by the lesser gifts. And don't get me wrong. Salvation's an awesome gift. Our sins are forgiven. Our guilt is removed. God's wrath is extinguished. Our consciences are cleansed. We're delivered from hell. But none of those things is the end goal of the gospel. If we were just delivered from hell, but put on some planet that God reshaped and remolded in deep space for us, it would still fall flat. And that's because the goal and the glory of the gospel is that it brings us to God. See, God is not another, is not a means to another reward. Oh, you get God and then you get this reward. The God of the universe is the reward of the gospel. He's not the means to a greater blessing. He is the blessing of the gospel. He is where regeneration finds its end, its fulfillment. He is where propitiation and justification actually lead. He is where reconciliation and adoption lead. He is where sanctification and glorification find their fruition. He is the goal of the gospel. This is eternal life. That they know you, the only true God, and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. If you're not excited to see Jesus face to face, If that is not what is motivating the way you live, when you see him face to face and you hope to hear, well done, good and faithful servant, enter into the joy of your master. If that's not what moves you, you are not moved by the right motivation. You're not. Amid the tribulation that's in this world, we're to be rejoicing in the hope of a new heavens and a new earth to come where righteousness dwells, but especially in what that means. The hope of life with the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb in that eternal city where the glory of God gives it light and its lamp is the Lamb. When we set our focus on, when we rejoice in the hope of seeing Christ face to face, of beholding our Savior and our Lord face to face, not through a veil, not dimly, not in these bodies of sin, but in glorified bodies like unto our Lord. And we set our focus on the age to come and the hope of our reward who is God Himself. That's when we can rejoice in tribulation in this world because the certain hope that is to be realized at the revelation of Jesus Christ and all of His glory is what is holding us fast. How often do you find yourself saying, Come, Lord Jesus, Come, Lord Jesus, I'm ready, come. I'm ready for Jesus to come now. Or how many of us won't say that, we're afraid to say that because there are lesser things in this world that we'd like to do before Jesus comes back. I would say to you, you have your hopes out of whack. But love, this joy of our true hope in the coming kingdom and beholding Christ, must permeate and fill the whole of our vision, of our expectations, of our desires, and our longing. We must rejoice in this profound hope of glory. That proper perspective, beloved, is the only way that we can faithfully endure. It's the only way that we can spend our lives for the sake of Christ and be resolute in the faith. You see, the trouble with some Christians, I'm just going to say this. The trouble with some Christians is this, is that they speak of the hope to come while their entire focus is on how to succeed and get along and live in the here and now. That's what they're really worried about. But they talk about the hope that's to come without really setting their joy upon it. And it's like trying to step on a boat while leaving one foot on the dock and the other on the boat. You ever try that? doesn't work out well, does it? It leads to a split that hurts, and then a fall you can't stop. There must come a point in all of us. When we, when we say, you know what, the hope of heaven, man, the hope of glory, the hope of seeing Christ is greater to me than whatever lesser hopes this world offers and whatever I've got to endure to receive it. 
And it's then and only then that we can say with Paul, for this light momentary affliction, and by the way, that is the word for tribulation, in verse 12, for this light momentary affliction, and oh, by the way, that's the word that Paul is using to describe the affliction but not being crushed, and the perplexity but not being driven to despair, and the persecution but not being forsaken, and the being struck down but not destroyed, right? This light momentary affliction, he said, is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison as we look not to the things that are seen but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient. Do you believe that? But the things that are unseen are eternal. But we're not living for this world. We're not living for the next human milestone in this world. Our hope is not in this world. It's not in this life that is but a vapor. Our hope is in Christ and in His kingdom to come. And we can endure whatever comes with faithfulness to Christ if we have that certain hope that will be consummated at the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ. We can endure anything if that hope fills our eyes. We've got to have the right perspective, he says. Some of us need the right perspective. And then we must have the right practice. We need to be constant in prayer. To remain steadfast. We've got to be occupied with the right practice. That's being constant in prayer. The word constant here, what does that mean? It's a word that means to be consistent. It means to give diligent attention to something. It means to be devoted to something. Or to be determined and undeterred. In this case, in your praying and seeking of God's face. That you do it regularly and habitually and persistently. Right? Paul told the Thessalonians, You know this, pray without what? Ceasing. First Thessalonians 5.17 What he's getting at is that the habitual practice of our lives must be prayer. And it says, we pray like this, that our souls will be steeled and will be strengthened and will be driven back into the grace and the goodness of God through regular focused meeting with God, through regular focused prayer, valuing that great grace that we have been given to be able to draw near to God through Christ. Mindful, for instance, of the words of the writer of Hebrews, who says, since then, Hebrews chapter 4, starting in verse 14 through 16, since then, we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are yet without sin. Then he says this, let us, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, so that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. We have a great high priest. We have one who's, one who's ever seated by the Father in heaven or standing in our defense, depending on you know, what text we're looking at. We have a great high priest who's passed through the heavens, who's endured tribulation, testing, trial, all of those things, temptation, just as we have yet without sin. He can sympathize with us. He knows what we need. He's made the way to the throne of grace, the new and living way by His shed blood. Come to it. Come to the throne of grace and receive the mercy and the grace you need in time to, to help in time of need. John Murray says, the measure of our perseverance in the midst of tribula- tribulation will be the measure of our diligence in prayer. Prayer is the means ordained by God for the supply of grace sufficient For every exigency. That's a word that means emergency or necessity. And particularly against the faint-heartedness to which affliction tempts us. We're in a battle. In battle, warriors get faint, don't they? They get tired, right? That's why a battle takes place one day, and then they all sleep for the night, and then they have a battle the next day. It's because battle's tiring, and in Ephesians, Paul describes to us, doesn't he, the, the, the armor that we're to put on, how we're to armor up with the belt of truth and the breastplate of righteousness and the shoes of the gospel of peace and the shield of faith and the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, right? But what is often overlooked is his exhortation after all of that 
where he says that we are to be praying at all times in the Spirit, with all prayer and supplication. And he says to that end, keep alert with all perseverance, making supplication for all the saints. I'm going to tell you what. Here's my experience as a pastor and in counseling with brothers and sisters in Christ. Here's my experience. Prayer is often the weakest and the most neglected part of a Christian's life. Prayer is often the weakest and most neglected part of a Christian's life. It's often the one that is put off. It is often the one that is laid aside. It is often the one that falls by the wayside because we're just so busy. It's the one that, well, if I had more time, I would pray. Seldom is it, I will make time to pray. There's a difference there, isn't there? Isn't there? I know I'm stomping on some toes right now. It's okay. You need to hear this for your own good. I find many times with people that prayer is relegated to emergency situations. It's really bad. I need to pray. Or it's just something that we say, that we, that we learn, you know. Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. And it's that kind of rote sort of just pray the same things over and over because that's what I do. I just don't think about it. I just say things. Many times it devolves into list presenting. God, here's my list of stuff I need you to fix. And here's my preference for how I'd like you to fix it. I've given it some real thought, God. And I hope you understand where I'm coming from. I would like you to do this. And then we make our list. We present our list to God. And then we give it the magic in Jesus' name. Amen. Then we get up and we're done. Sometimes we just don't pray at all. And prayer becomes something other than seeking to commune with the Lord. Seeking to know Him in His ways. Desiring His wisdom and His power. Desiring to have His leadership and His shepherding of our lives. Asking for strength and energy and faith to endure in the midst of all tests. Of desiring His grace in the stuff of our lives. We don't treat the Almighty God as a person as a father who delights to commune with and to hear and to respond to the prayers of his people. Instead, we turn him into a divine vending machine. We don't care much about knowing him more as long as he gives us the goodies we want. Imagine what that would be like for you as a parent with your children. Maybe some of you have experienced that. Where your children don't really want you for you, They just want you for what they get, for the stuff. Where conversations are minimal, where seeking your advice is small, where asking your wisdom is seldom thought of, and where conversations don't happen unless there's an outstretched hand. We don't call that a relationship. We call that using somebody, don't we? Neglected prayer means a weakened and a wavering soul. Remaining steadfast and enduring in this present evil age demands that we pray and that we lay hold of God, that we seek to commune with Him, we lay hold of His omnipotence, and we don't rely on ourselves, and we don't rely on our own wisdom, and we don't rely on our own strength. I want you to think about this. If there was ever anybody who may have gotten along okay in the world... Without prayer, it was our Lord Jesus Christ, right? And yet, what's the testimony of Scripture? The testimony of Scripture is that He prayed, He prayed earnestly, He prayed intensely so that He would persevere in His mission to redeem sinners and fulfill the will of His Father and glorify Him in this world, right? Beloved, we must pray. Really pray. Really seek God. Really seek to know Him as Father. Really seek to know Christ as Elder Brother. Really seek His strength, His might. Really seek His glory so that we are energized to stand fast in this God-hating world. Beloved, we need to pray. Spurgeon said, a prayerless soul is a Christless soul. Wow. 
A prayerless soul is a Christless soul. You remember the promise of the Lord Jesus. He said, whatever you ask in my name, this I will do. That the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask anything in my name, I will do it. There's only one caveat there, isn't there? In my name, that is, according to his will and his character. Ask whatever you want. The Apostle John tells us, and this is the confidence that we have toward him, that if we ask anything according to his will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us in whatever we ask, we know that we have the requests that we have asked of him, right? That's supplication, asking for the Lord to move in our situation. But I think I I love David's heart more in Psalm 62. Starting in verse 5 when he says this, Speaking to his own soul. For my, for God alone, O oh my soul, wait in silence. For my hope is from him. He only is my rock and my salvation, my fortress. I shall not be shaken. On God rests my salvation and my glory, my mighty rock, my refuge is God. And then he says, trust in him at all times. O oh people, pour out your heart before him. God is a refuge for us. Beloved, if we would stand firm with resolute endurance, refusing to compromise our faith in Christ in the face of tribulation, we must be much more constant in prayer. Prayer should not be the last resort. Prayer should not be the emergency valve. Prayer should be the very warp and move of our lives. John MacArthur said some extremely helpful things in this regard. He said this, he said, To pray at all times is to live in continual God consciousness, where everything we see and experience becomes a kind of prayer. Listen to what he says. He says, oh, I'm sorry, lived in deep awareness of and surrendered to our Heavenly Father. And then he says it like this. He says, To obey this exhortation means that when we are tempted, we hold the temptation before God and ask for His help. When we experience something good and beautiful, we immediately thank the Lord for it. When we see evil around us, we pray that God will make it right and be willing to be used of him to that end. When we meet someone who does not know Christ, we pray for God to draw that person to himself and to use us to be the faithful witness. When we encounter trouble, we turn to God as our deliverer. In other words, our life becomes a continually ascending prayer, a perpetual communing. With our Heavenly Father. That's how you. That's how you be constant in prayer. Prayer turns tribulation. Into a means of grace. Because prayer. Because tribulation drives us back to God in prayer. It gives meat to our prayers. Tribulation gives urgency to our petitions. And you know what? Often when we're communing with God. Often when we are communing with God in the midst of tribulation. We, have, we, we come to this understanding. We begin to understand the way and the, and the purpose of God, the, the ways and the hows of God's purpose, what He's doing, what He's up to. You ever had that experience when you're in the midst of tribulation and you pray and God lays upon your heart why this is? What's going on? How He's using this in our lives? Psalm 25 verse 14 says, The friendship... Or literally, the secret counsel of the Lord is for those who fear Him. And He makes known to them His covenant. It says, we, it says in reverent communion with God, when we're in prayer and in reverent communion with God, it's in those times, sometimes, not always, that He reveals to us His secret counsel as it pleases Him. It doesn't mean that He'll reveal to us everything, nor does it mean that He will not expect us to walk by faith, but there are some things that God reveals to us in prayer that give strength and endurance to us that we would not know any other way. And so we need to be constant in prayer. Beloved, if we're going to stand firm, if we're going to endure to the end in the face of tribulation, we need to courageously face our present reality. We need to, we need to face the reality in which we live. We live in a world that hates God. We live in a world that hates Christ. We live in a world that collectively gnashes its teeth at Him and that persecutes His people a world that is in spiritual darkness and one that attacks the very ones, people who attack the very ones who can proclaim to them the only way of salvation that Almighty God has provided to wretched sinners. That's our present reality. 
We live in a world that desperately needs to hear the message from us of the gospel, but that hates us and hates the message. And so we've got to do the calculus here and realize if I'm going to be faithful to proclaim the glory of Christ and the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ in this fallen, this darkened world to sinners who need to hear it, and, and that's the only way that they can be saved, but they hate that message and they hate the Christ that I'm proclaiming, they hate me too, we need to do the calculus and realize it's not going to be easy, it's going to be painful, it's going to be hard. But Jesus said this, he said, if the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. If you were of the world, the world would love you as its own. Isn't that true? Right? But because you are not of the world, but I chose you out of the world, therefore the world hates you. That ought to be a lesson to all the churches that are just so dearly beloved by all of the sinners in the world. Oh, we just love so-and-so church. They're just so non-judgmental. Remember the word that I said to you. A servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. We can't expect an easy road. But neither can we withdraw from this world in self-protection. It's not an option for us. Jesus didn't do that. It's not like, you know, when, it, when, the, when the time was right... In God's divine plan for Christ to come into this world in His incarnation to put on human flesh. The Lord Jesus Christ didn't step back and say, I don't know, I, I need to really think about this. Maybe I should protect myself. He didn't. And neither can we. And here's why. We've got the only life-giving, sin-destroying, death-conquering message in this world. We alone, listen, we alone on the face of the earth, not just our church, but Christians, two faithful Christians alone, on the face of this church, alone know the truth with a capital T. Just us. We're ambassadors for Christ, are we not? And we must be faithful. Yes, we will face increasing degrees of tribulation in this world, but we must remain steadfast, unmoved, and unbowed for the sake of God's glory and for the sake of the souls of sinners. The message of, the, of King Jesus is the only hope for sinners in this world, and we will be hated for it. But we must not, but we must be willing, I mean, to suffer with Christ and for Christ in order that he be exalted and that elect sinners be rescued from the wrath that is sure to come. The only way we're going to do that is this. Number one, get our eyes off this earth as our hope. Our hope is Christ. Our hope is the coming kingdom. If our hope is in this, this world only, we are of all people most to be pitied. Our hope is in the heaven to come. The Christ, who is our Lord. And then second, we need to be praying praying to the God of all power and grace who gladly supplies His people with all they need because He freely gives Himself to us. And that's when our faith won't merely survive. Beloved, it'll shine even more brightly in the darkness of this world. Stay the course. Rejoice in the hope that is to come. Be constant in prayer. And stay the course. And may our Lord Jesus Christ Himself and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. Let's pray together. Father, we need these words. We need to hear these words. And not just hear them, Lord God, but receive them and be shaped by them and molded by them and transformed by them. God, I am pleading with you that for believers in this room, Lord God, we would be patient in tribulation. We would be steadfast. We would be unmoved. We would be tenacious in our perseverance and in our endurance. That we would not have any give in our, in our relationship to Christ. No, no, no give in our faith in Christ, Lord God, that we would not compromise at all the very word of the living God, that the truth would master our hearts and souls, that we would stand firm in the face of a world that increasingly rejects clear gospel proclamation, clear truth declaration, that, Father God, we would remain steadfast and we would remain firm and we would remain committed to the glory of your holy name in this earth. 
And I pray, Lord God, that in order to do that, we would be a people whose hope, whose hope would be exclusively in the Lord Jesus Christ and in the kingdom that is to come. And that, Lord, we would have the right perspective that what matters most are not the various milestones of living in this earth that we so often celebrate. Not that they're not important, not that they don't matter, but in truth, they are insignificant compared to the hope of seeing Christ face to face. And if we're only hoping for things in this earth, how shallow and how blind we are to what real life is. And Lord, I pray that you would make us people of prayer, of steadfast and constant communion with you, and people who delight in you and delight in being with you and communing with you. I pray that, Father, you would convict us where we need to be convicted this morning. I pray you'd encourage us where we need to be encouraged. I pray that these words, Lord, I I trust in, in, in your declaration regarding your word that will not return to you void. So I pray that it's doing the good work of digging up the soil of our hearts, the good work of proclaiming the glory of Christ, the good work of drawing your people to you, whether they're saved or yet to be saved. Let this word do its work, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.